Well, hey, uh, week five, we are halfway through. I mean, can you believe this? This is amazing. Five more weeks. Well, in addition to five more weeks, uh, I want to let you guys know tonight, I don't think there's any... Are there uh, weekend registrations on the table, Jordan? Do you see any weekend registrations on the table? There are. Well, I want to let you know that... No? Okay. A part of the the Alpha course is the Alpha weekend, and that's going to be uh, May 11th and 12th. So it's a Friday, May 11th. It's actually a part of the course. It helps us get everything in. We've always done this Alpha weekend. And it really is the highlight of the Alpha course. So it's Friday night. It's dinner. It looks just like this with the exception of the fact that unless something miraculous happens, we will not have kid care. So we won't have Alpha for kids on that night. So it's Friday night, dinner, and then Saturday morning, uh, 8.30, If any of you are looking to increase your cholesterol levels, anybody want their cholesterol levels? Okay, this is where you need to be on Saturday morning. Uh, The the breakfast that Pete Shefferstein puts together has put Shoney's out of business. It's just, it's amazing. So 8.30 will be breakfast on Saturday morning, May 12th. We'll be done by no later. Typically it's 12.15, 12.30 at the absolute latest. Just kind of mark your calendar. We'll have some registration forms for you next week. It's, uh, again, totally free. We just want you to come and be a part of this. And again, as I said, it is really the highlight of the Alpha course and wants you to be a part of that. So tonight, why and how should I read the Bible? Well, you know, if there, if there was a little test put together, uh, a remedial Bible quiz... Uh, Let me take these away for a moment. They just decided to come up. Remedial Bible quiz designed specifically for Frank Loria. Um, Why should I read the Bible? My answer would be, I have absolutely no idea. Unless I was taking the class, the Bible as literature at LSU, that would have been the only reason. Two, um, is Christianity based on the Bible? I I guess. I'm really not sure. Um, is Christianity based only on the Bible? That, that seems a little narrow, so... No, I, I, I don't know. Uh, four, in what Bible book is God addressed as the man upstairs? Isaiah? Uh, Hi, I'm, I'm sure. Okay. Thank you, thank you. There's more. Just hold on, there's more. Um, is Noah's wife Joan of Ark? That's... I I would have probably said yes. Um, uh, Name the four... Why does this keep doing this to me? Name the four Gospels. Uh, Saint... Please, please. Let's not cheat. Uh, I would say Saint John. Saint Paul. uh, Saint George and Saint Ringo. Those would have been, as far as I was concerned, certainly... Write down all Bible verses you know. Uh, Don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Isn't that a great one? I love that one. Don't know what it means, but that's not in the Bible. Um, Cleanliness, this is my mother's. Cleanliness is next to godliness. That was in her Bible. Um, And then uh, God helps those who help themselves. Now, I would have sworn that is in the Bible. That's got to be in the Bible. Um, 
But uh, no, actually it wasn't. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches just the opposite, that God helps those and does more than help those who realize they can't help themselves and call out on him. And that's really what we've been talking about with this, this diagram I've been showing you now for the last three weeks, that religion is man's effort to reach God. And it is impossible and that every religion in the world, with the exception of biblical Christianity, basically says God helps those who help themselves. Biblical Christianity says that God does for man what man cannot do for himself. And when man trusts Christ, he saves him. He delivers him. He gives him life. As we talked about last week, there's really no way to know for sure. There's no way to know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ if or that you're going to heaven, or that you have peace with God if I'm just doing my best and I hope so and I'm keeping my fingers crossed. And so that is the truth of what the scripture teaches. If the Bible is true, it tells us that God intervenes on behalf of those who realize they are helpless. And that sounds good, but it steps deeply in the fact that you and I are sinful and prideful and don't like the fact that there's nothing I can do to pull myself out of the last crack I put myself in. So, so when it came to the Bible, really, because I hadn't read it, though, as I said before, I was a committed meologist, I believed about God. I assumed things about God and things about the Bible, uh, and I thought stereotypically. But, you know, stereotypically thinking is really not I would argue it's not thinking at all. It's really at least not critically thinking. So when, honestly, I just kind of get these, have a strange mind. Um, But if somebody would talk to me about the Bible, I would just kind of get this picture in my mind of of a big man, a very big man, three-piece, polyester suit, black shirt, black suit, of course, black tie, flowing hair, you know, the flowing hair thing, and just going back and forth across the podium, swinging his Bible, sweat profusely dripping, dripping from him. So he's screaming at his congregation, saying to them, I got bad news, and I got good news. The bad news is you're a dirty bunch of rotten, no-good sack of roaches sinners, and you're all going to hell. Well, preacher, listen, we've been hearing all the bad news over and over again. What about the good news, my brother? Well, glory, man, I'm glad you said that. I just talked to Geico, saved 15% of my car insurance. <laughs> See, that, I mean, that's, that's basically what I believe, that you had to <laughs> repent. <laughs> Keith is gone, isn't he? Okay. <laughs> See, the thing is, because we don't know, as you guys tr- uh, told me uh, in week two, that none of us really grew up reading the Bible or knowing what's in it. Um, because we don't know what the Bible says, we make assumptions. We make assumptions like this. We really can't understand it. It's, it's just too hard to understand. Or there are too many interpretations. Who can know what the right interpretation is? actually is. Or it's full of errors. I mean, who's to know if any of it's true or what part's true, what part's is false? Or, or it's all bad news anyway. I got enough guilt in my own life, life already without the Bible piling on. 
You know, those were actually thoughts that I've, I've heard. But my personal favorite. We're not supposed to read it. That's for the educated people. That's for the people that went to school. Really? Where did we get that idea? You will not find that in the Bible. As a matter of fact, you'll find the exact opposite in the Bible. Where we're encouraged to read the word. That we're blessed if we read the word. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, this is a scripture we'll come back to in a little bit. But Paul says this to the Romans. In, the Roman, uh, in Romans chapter 10 verse 17, Paul says this. That faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So if faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, what comes by not hearing the word of Christ? Faith in something other than the scriptures, for sure. And so, why and how should we read the Bible is that God makes it very clear to us to get to know Him, we read His word. Now look, even if you don't believe a word of this, I I encourage you who are coming to Alpha and don't believe it, at least you're going to know at the end of this course, or the last night you come, more about what Christianity actually is based on the Bible and, and what it isn't. And so I'm so grateful that you're here wherever you are in terms of your faith position concerning God, Jesus Christ, and, and the Bible. So let's just talk about the fact that in our manual it tells us the Bible is a, a popular book. It's a, it's a powerful book. Let's just talk about how power, popular the Bible is. You look at the top 23 authors over the, over the 1990s, you see, these will be the, and you know, you could, maybe you recognize some of them. Um, about the Berenstain one. I think I read some of those. But um, it's a little heavy for me. But if you look at those books, the total number of those books ever sold totals about three and a half million. Billion, Billion sorry. Ha-ha, so you're listening. Thank you very much. <laughs> I knew that. I, okay. If you look at the number of Bibles sold in just the 1990s, Five billion in just the 90s. And those are the ones sold. That's not not being able to account for the numbers of Bibles that were given given away. So the Bible, it's powerful in its production, in its purpose, in its preservation. And I want to show you just a little video here that was made as a promotion for the Museum of the Bible that just opened in Washington, D.C. in November. And Annette and I and our... Some of our grandkids had a chance to go see it. So I want to show you a little video here just to show you how the Bible in its production and its purpose and its preservation is powerful.
It truly is the book that has shaped and continues to shape history. So it's had its impact on uh, a few fairly powerful men. I could bring to you a multitude of quotes, but from Washington, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Abraham Lincoln wrote, I believe that the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. And then Ronald Reagan, within the covers of the Bible are all the answers for all the problems men face. Imagine if that were true. And I would argue that it is. So its preservation really is amazing. As you saw, just a quick history of its origins and movement through the world and through time. And I think the, the preservation is really, it's, it's encouraging to those who have faith in Christ and, and hopefully challenging in a good way to those if you're, if you're seeking. You know, we talked about, uh, I think in week two, we talked about textual criticism. Now, I won't go into that again, but there's more manuscripts of the New Testament of the Bible hundreds of times, thousands of times over than any document, any ancient document that is accepted in literature today. There's not an ancient document that comes close to comparison to the New Testament scriptures in the quantity of manuscripts, in the consistency of those manuscripts, in the shortened period of time between the original autograph and the first copies. Uh, also, uh, in terms of archaeology, Nelson Gluck, who is considered the world's or one of the world's foremost archaeologists, he wrote this. He says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And, by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. They form tesserae, or just little tiles, in the vast mosaic of the Bible's almost incredibly correct historical memory. And so we, we see in it, and since Nelson Gluck made this quote, there have been thousands of more discoveries. There's actually a, a book that's put out, I believe it's semi, uh, I think it's put out semi-monthly or bi-monthly, I can't remember what it is, called the Biblical Archaeology Review. Its whole purpose is to bring forth biblical Archaeological discoveries. It's been around for, I don't even know, well, well over 20, 30 years. Another way we look at the scriptures and we, we see that they are worth listening to, they are valid, is the numbers of prophecies. There's over 330 prophecies in the scriptures that are attributed to Jesus having fulfilled. And Peter Stone, in his book, Science Speaks, on the topic of the science of probability tells us this, that the, poss the probability of one person fulfilling just 48 of those 330 prophecies is 10 to the 157th power. That's 10 with 156 zeros after it. I don't know, have any idea what that number is. Maybe that's the national debt. I'm not sure, but it's a lot of zeros after it. Now, for one person to fulfill just 
eight of those 330 prophecies is this. Let's just look at eight prophecies. The place of birth of the Messiah, the type of birth, the time of appearance, the Jerusalem entrance, betrayal, type of death, burial, resurrection. Just eight of them. I just picked eight. The chance of eight of those being fulfilled by just one person is 10 to the 17th power. Okay, that's what that number looks like. 10 with 16 zeros after it. Now, to give you a, a picture of what that is, and, and, and this was done, and the picture of this would be this. 10 to the 17th power is the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. The chance of... It, just say you mark one of those silver dollars with an X and you throw it into the middle of a pile of silver dollars and have some Texas twister come and stir it up. The chance of one person on one try getting that silver dollar the first time is that number. So when you, we just look at from a thinking point of view the possibilities of the prophecies of this book and the fulfillment of them by Jesus. To me, for the person that is open and willing to hear, they will desire to know, is there more to this than that? Is there more to this book than I've given credence to? So I think it's fascinating. So, you know, it... And so when you, when you look at the Bible, God has not, the scripture doesn't tell us that God says, come to me, but just trust me, blindly trust me. You know, God has not asked us to check our brains at the door. He has encouraged us to recognize that he is God and we are not. And that as we humbly search for him and ask him to reveal himself, he tells us through his word that he will, that he is God. I think the problem that, that many of us have, at least the problem that I had, was that God chooses to tell us what we need to know, not all we demand he tells us we want to know, we have to know. I think the scripture tells us what we need to know, not all there is to know. I, I love this quote by, by uh, Mark Twain. Twain wrote, he said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's parts I do. <laughs> There's a lot of things my parents did I did not understand. And told me that I did not understand. But there were a lot of things they told me that I did understand. <laughs> See, God, I believe God wants us to humbly, thoughtfully search for him. So you look in the scriptures, humbly search for him. James 4, 6 through 7. Humble. You know, God gives grace to the humble. You know, he calls us to come to him thoughtfully. Isaiah 118, come let us reason together, though your sins are as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. Come and search for me. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. These are the promises that God makes through the scriptures. Now let's, let's just have a little test here because I think this is interesting. Jesus is being tested by one of the, the lawyers at the time. 
Uh, now, this is not this is not Morris Bart or somebody like this. This is this is this is a, a, someone who is a, a professor in the law, someone who knows the law of the Jews. He knows the Jewish law, and he comes to Jesus to test him. He says, "Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law?" And he says to him, "You shall love the Lord." Your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and we have a little multiple choice test for us here, and with all of your sincerity. Enthusiasm. Just be enthusiastic. Not opposed to it. I got no problem with sincerity and enthusiasm. Just want to be sincere and enthusiastic about the right thing. See, with your higher consciousness. Love Him with your higher consciousness. Love Him with your gut feelings or love God with all your heart soul and with all your mind answer mind see God says to love him with our minds think But use your brain humbly, in humble search. He has given us evidence. He has called us to learn of him. And look at what Jesus goes on to say after that. This is the great and foremost commandment. The great and the foremost commandment is to love God. Well, how do I know who I'm loving? The Bible reveals the God who is to be loved with the totality of our being. And we see here that God has spoken through revelation of himself. Just some, some quick facts about um, the Bible. Some, some interesting things, I think. It's comprised of 66 books. There's 37 books in the Hebrew Scriptures. 29 in the New Testament. Uh, 40 authors from various walks of life. Kings. Shepherds, rich, poor, fishermen, tax collectors. It was written across a time span of 15 to 1800 years. The Bible consists of narrative history, war stories, drama, exposition, letters, prophecies, sermons, wisdom literature. It's written in three continents Asia, Africa, Europe, and then it's written in three languages Greek, Aramaic, and Jewish, Hebrew. So we see here, if you, we just want to just take a minute and just break down the books. And I think on your tables, don't, don't, don't stop there now, but just something for you to take with you tonight, just to see the way the books of the Bible are broken down. We've got the first five books of the Bible are called the Law, or the Jews will call it the Torah, the Law, or the Pentateuch, the first five books. Then we have the History of Israel. Then we have poetic books, the Psalms, the Proverbs. You know, wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes. So it's like, we have the major prophets, we have the minor prophets. Not because they're not as important as the major ones, they're just smaller books. Then we go to the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the, the synopses of, of Jesus' life. We have the historical book of the first church, when Jesus is ascended into heaven, called the book of Acts. Then we have Paul's epistles that are written to the churches, those who have gotten in the wheelbarrow. If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. If you were not here last week, you're really confused when I say that. So, um, 
And then we have the general epistles, the general letters, which all of these are written, all these epistles are written to those who have said, I do, who have received the gift. And then the prophetic book, the apocalypse, the book of Revelation. So I've got that little card for you there, and I may help you a little bit. So the Bible reveals in writing what you and I know internally is true. Something bigger than I is out there. You know, we're, we see things on the outside and we sense them on the inside. So, the, 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 uh, David writes that the heavens are telling of the glory of the Lord and the earth confirms God's handiwork. And so we can see around us from the order that there is that someone greater created all of this. But we also know from the sensation that we have inside, where does my conscience come from? Where does guilt come from? Where does pleasure come from? Where does happiness, sadness, where do all those come from? We, we know from that that there's something in us, the highest part of us, is the fact that you and I can think and feel. So, if I'm asking myself the question tonight, why should I read this Bible? Well, I would argue that it, it holds the answers to the question of life that we all have. But until we get in it, we're not really going to know what it says. I, mean, I had dismissed out of hand the Bible for many reasons. But I had no idea what it said. Well, so the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in, in a letter that he wrote to him, he says this. He says, all scripture is inspired by God. So God inspired man to write scripture is what the Apostle Paul tells us. And it's profitable. We Americans like the word profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for showing where we got it wrong, for correction to show us how to get it right, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So that everyone who trusts in God may be equipped to walk out life in this earth. The Bible, the word of God teaches us. It rebukes us. It trains us. It corrects us. That's what God does through giving us this word. But this word is not just a word about with pages, with, with words on a page... This book brings the truth of who God is to light in us so that we experience the very life of Jesus Christ whom he gives us so that we can enjoy this fellowship with him through the reading of the word and through the walking out of what we've read. Because God is immensely personal. And that is not the picture of religion that I held in absolute sincerity, yet incorrectly. I always thought that God was just ready to pounce on me at the slightest thing I did wrong. But when I look at this, the teaching and rebuking or reproving, the training and correction, all of that was out of love. All of that was so that I could know him more. And we see that the Bible really is our manual for life. It is our manual for life. Now, any of you guys, uh, you know, 
It's, it's late, it's Christmas Eve. You have children. You have gotten a bicycle for your child. You're tired. But it's Christmas Eve and you have put this off to the last minute. And so you go to put this bike together. I can put this bike together. So you begin to put the bike together and everything else and there it is, looks good. And then you notice this part that's sitting on the side. And your wife says to you, Did you read the instructions? (laughs) Well, who needs to read the instructions? So you finally, when she's left, you pick up the instructions quickly. And you read, very important. This piece, that piece, needs to be installed early in the assembly process. Now with that, what do you do? Do you close the instructions? You peacefully walk outside. You open your sliding door into the backyard. You look up into the dark of night. And you say, curse you, Mr. Schwinn. I hate you. (laughs) Now, we do kind of the same thing with God, don't we? Why didn't that go right? Did you think about reading the instructions before you said that to her? Did you think about reading the instructions before you went and did that? Or said that? Or didn't do that? And what do we do with that? God! God! Why? Well, I don't know. I just don't like you. I mean, what do you, what do you think? <laughs> um, it's really interesting that we do that. We just wonder why things don't go. But we don't, we don't consult the one who gave us the manual, who teaches us, who reproves us, who corrects us, and who trains us. See, the Bible reveals that you and I have a need for God, and without him, the parts don't come together. And the real issue is that. We have a need that nothing on this earth can satisfy. We have a need that no amount of money, no amount of of, uh, importance, possessions, that hole, as St. Augustine said, is a God-sized hole. The need is the issue, and it's what the Bible tells us we have. It tells us that we have fallen short of God's glory. Now, I want to take us back to... um, Let's go back to Niagara Falls for just a minute. Okay? Now, last week we talked about Niagara. We talked about a guy by the name of Blondin that stretched a tightrope across the rapids at Niagara Falls. That he challenged folks to get in the wheelbarrow. That he strapped... That he went back and forth with his manager. He says, do you believe I can take a man, put him in a wheelbarrow? Woman, put her in a wheelbarrow. Take her from one side of the falls to the next. And um, I think Herman said, you believe that... He believed that you could do it for some, one of the guys over here, but you were not getting in the wheelbarrow. Do you remember that? Well, 
I mean, a nice publicity stunt. Now, today, what are people doing if the moment the guy gets in the wheel... Let's say Herman got in the wheelbarrow. What are people doing the moment Herman gets in the wheelbarrow? This is what they're doing. Please fall. Please. 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 Right? I mean, they're looking to make a lot of money off this guy going to the drink. Um, But let's just say there was just one, there's one means of coming into that area of Niagara Falls and one means of going out. And all of us are watching Blondin and Blondin's doing his thing here and all of a sudden we start feeling this immense heat on the back of our neck. And we turn around and we see that the area in which we came in is completely engulfed in flames and there is no way out except attempting to run through the flames, which is certain death. Or we can try to jump into the water and survive the rapids that no man has ever survived. Now, people have survived jumping off of that thing, and I don't know why you would. But no one has ever survived the Niagara Rapids. Or they could look at Blondin, and Blondin could say, I can take a man, I could take a woman, and I can put him on a wheelbarrow, in a wheelbarrow and take him from one side of the falls to the next. Now we don't have a publicity stunt, do we? Now we have a matter of life or death. See, when Jesus comes and he defeats death and he proves it by rising from the dead, he says, I can take a woman and take her from this side to the next and avoid the flames. Or you can try to do it yourself in which we know no one will survive. And he comes to rescue us because he knows without him, without that wheelbarrow, no one will survive. See, the the two problematic aspects of this, see, because as I said to you last week, you know, you may be here curious, and I, again, I'm so happy you're here curious and thinking through these things or that you're convinced maybe you've lived with these things your whole life but you've never really known what it meant to say I do as we talked about last week didn't know what it meant to receive the gift more than give mental assent to this God thing by showing up at church occasionally or praying when things were really lousy but what it meant to really give yourself to Jesus Christ maybe you're convinced as I said But you've really not trusted him to the point that you're getting in the wheelbarrow and trusting him and him alone for your eternity. Or, as I said, maybe you're here and you are committed. You are trusting him and you want to know him more. And you have friends that you want to know him and know him more as well. Well, the two problematic issues of getting in the wheelbarrow are this. When I get in the wheelbarrow, when I say I do, when I surrender my life to Jesus Christ, when I... When I say, no more do I desire to be in Adam. Remember this, if you were here last week, if you weren't, they'll tell you about it at the table. No longer do I desire to be in Adam, which is separation from God, which is certain death. I want to be placed into the life, the forgiveness, the acceptance of Jesus Christ. Okay. 
The problem with this is, I say no longer here, and I repent of insisting that God accept me based on my performance. Okay? I insist God no longer accept me based on my performance. And I repent, I turn around from believing or insisting I accept God based on his performance. Now, now did you hear what I just said? Because I have dear friends, and they've told me, when God let that happen, I was so PO'd with him. Okay. But to understand what God allowed means you would have to have the mind of God to fully grasp what he allowed. And when I surrender control of my life to him, when I acknowledge to him, I am not worthy of your heaven, but you have done for me what I needed to pay my way. At that point in time, I stop making demands on God. I stop insisting he has to be the way I want him to be. He has to do what I want him to do. He can't let that happen. Therefore, I I have to relinquish control of my life to the one who said he loves me. And he died to prove it. Let's look at this. God speaks on page 35. Look, God's love letter is to reveal the truth about his character and thereby draw us to him. His letter, love letter, is to reveal the truth about his character and to thereby draw us to him. Paul also writing to to, to Timothy writes this. He says that from childhood, Timothy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to, look at this, give you wisdom that leads to salvation, a relationship with Christ, taking you out of Adam and placing you into Christ. See, the Bible is to draw us into that relationship with God, a two-way relationship where we speak and God listens, and God listens, rather, and God speaks and we listen. I mean, get scripture we've talked about before, but I love this scripture where Jesus says, look, come to me, come to me. If you are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. Cast your yoke upon me and learn of me. God is calling you and me to himself because he desires for you and me to know him. He desires for you and me to trust him. He desires for you and me to no longer attempt to have a relationship with him based on our goodness. Therefore, what he should do for us but based on his goodness and what he did in Jesus Christ for us. And then John 10, Jesus says this. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. Now here's the question I would ask, a simple question. If Jesus has come that we may have life, Does that mean we don't have it until he gives it? Now think about that. If Jesus is making this statement, I've come that they might have life, have it more completely, have it to the full, have it abundantly. 
He can't give what we already have. So he's saying, I come so you can have life. What you have now is death. What you have now is separation from God. What you have now will never give you acceptance and forgiveness in God's sight. I have come to give you my life. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus comes and lives the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. So that you and I, in accepting the work of Jesus as the payment for our sins, can have life. The life he gives. And that life to the full. So that everything that goes on in the dash, it may not mean it's all good, but in the short time we have on earth, it will be Jesus' promises abundantly, even in times of heartache. And not just knowing him in the dash, but knowing him the moment our heart stops and we wake up in eternity. That is his promise to us. See, the the Bible tells us that we are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. And that the deepest part of our being is relational. God made a decision. Let us make man in our own image. God tells man to love him. The Bible tells us that God loves us. And you know that the highest part of our being, the highest part of your being and my being, is not your ability to make money, not your ability to work out a Rubik's Cube. The deepest part of your being and my being is that we are relational. Let me prove that to you. We are relational above all else. Let me take you into a funeral home right now. Just go with me to a funeral home and stand at the coffin of the person who is the dearest thing to you. See that lifeless body in that coffin. You there? What would you not give? What would you not give that that lifeless body was brought back to life at that moment? I know what you'd give. Give it all. The Bible teaches us this, that God looked over our lifeless bodies. Dead, separated, soaked in sin and selfishness. He looked over our dead selves. And he loved us so much that he gave the greatest thing he could give. His son, So that he who would have the son would have the life. He would have the son would know that he, she has eternal life. And this glorious book called the Bible reveals to us this great love of God from Genesis to Revelation. Why should we read it? Because we get to know our creator. We get to know our savior. 
Do I understand it all? I don't understand it all. But I understand enough. And I'm understanding more as he gives more and more revelation. So God directs us to himself through the scriptures. As I told you the scripture earlier, faith comes by hearing. We could say faith comes by reading. And reading by the word of Christ. The Bible tells us without faith we cannot please God. Well then it seems like I better have faith if God is going to be pleased. And that faith is to trust his word, to trust his son. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. John chapter 20, verse 31. Jesus says, but these, John says that these things are written that you may believe, get in the wheelbarrow, say I do, receive the gift. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, get in the wheelbarrow, say I do, repent from being an Adam, turn away from this life, and be placed into Christ. That believing you may have life, not death, but life in his name. Now I want to do this. I want to ask a good friend of mine, Robert Schulte, Bob Schulte, to come up. And uh, I want Bob to just share his story very briefly. Um, Bob and, and, uh, Rob and uh, his wife, Denise, became good friends of Annette's and mine. But Rob happened to be sitting, oh, Herman, about where you are, LJ, where you are. Where, where were you sitting? Sit, sitting at that table right there? And... Um, and I, Rob is going to just take a moment to just share his story. And uh, here's Rob Schulte. Good evening. Hello. <laughs> um, uh, a little bit out of my element. Usually I'm behind a drum set playing and singing. So. But uh, I'm just going to read this so I don't get off on a tangent and carry on too far. So this, uh, for many years... I was trying to fill a void that I realized in my life in some ways I thought I could do this socially by being in the business and the notoriety of being the top cat playing every church fair and error living a life where I could measure up living my life of meology I was describing that so I had my way I was trying to earn it and I was also at the time taking some courses at Delgado and philosophy to fill up my during the week when I don't play music and uh, one morning it was the spring of 2014 I went to pick up my mail as usual there was Cliff everyone knows Cliff here he was my mailman for 20 years smiling as usual he asked how I was doing and I was dealing with a lot of trials and tribulations in my time and he asked me um, you know about my difficulties and challenges and I blurted out well I'm taking courses in philosophy I think therefore I am so (laughs) I thought I was pretty smart you know but uh Cliff stepped back and said with a grin, as usual, you might be interested in this course. And he handed me a course, the, uh, the alpha, uh, alpha pamphlet, and said, you might come by and have a salad, meet some wonderful people, and just listen to some thoughts concerning the meaning of life. Much to my surprise, I attended, and I heard things about God, Christ, and me that I had never heard before. And on my fourth week, sitting at the table over there, I, um, excuse me, I, in that, in that fourth week, when I realized no matter what I would do, I would never measure up. It didn't matter how many church fairs I played, how many good <laughs> deeds I did. 
that I needed to, I needed a savior. And it was clear. And I gave my life to Christ in the fourth weekend. And it's changed my life dramatically. And I've been living and walking to be Christ-like ever since this time. Falling like everyone else does, always. But knowing that I had that strength in God that is so spoken well in Philippians. You know, we continue to press on. And even me, Robert Schulte, will not perish but have eternal life. As I began to walk my with God and my understanding of the Bible, God gave me another gift from my uh, beautiful wife, Denise, who uh, on our first date, I asked her, would, you know, and I was ready. You know, God had a plan for me. And when I went on that first date with her, uh, I said, what are you looking in a man, I, to, you know, for a relationship? And the first thing she said is, you, you have to have God in your life. And I said, I just got him. <laughs> right there. <laughs> so it's clear that Denise and I could never stand here today by our own goodness, creating by our own good works. We stand here today solely because of the grace and mercy of God given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. you, Rob. Thank you. That's what I told him that. I just got him. I just got him. Yeah. That's so funny. Stay there. Okay. Wow. I, ha- I have found, as, and I know this will be true, you'll find this at your tables tonight as you talk around the table for those who have spent some time in the scripture. You know, the more... Um, bicep curls you do uh, the stronger your bicep gets at least that's the way it's supposed to happen Um, the more you work out your physical body the more in shape it is the stronger it is Um, the Bible is the exercise for a believer to strengthen his relationship with God the Father and God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit. And uh, what we're going to do too is I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to give us some time tonight at our tables, a little bit more time tonight at the tables to talk about how do we hear God speak through the Bible? Okay, where do I start in this big book? And um, I'm thinking instead of my just taking this time now, I, I know that I want to give you a little bit more time, so I'm going to let you guys do this. I'm, I'm, I don't have this scripture up, but here's what Jesus had to say. It's, if you may want to write this down in your manual, John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. Jesus said this, If you hold to my teaching, the teaching is going to be found in the scripture, John 8, 31 and 32. If you hold to my teaching... You are really my disciples. And then he says this, and you will know the truth. Now, if we want to John 14, the Bible tells us that Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth 
will make you free. Now, if Jesus is alive, raised from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, if he really is, if this scripture is the truth, and the truth will set me free in receiving Jesus the truth through his word by the Spirit the truth, and the truth will set me free from the death that I now have in Adam, separated from Christ. It will set me free from death. He will set me free from errors. He will set me free to truly live life and live it more abundantly. And I just want to encourage you again. The last couple of weeks I've ended just by just encouraging us to to think about that. What does that mean to you individually tonight? Not at your table, not in this room, just you and God individually. Regardless of where you are tonight, I would just encourage you, at some point in time before you fall off to sleep this evening, you stare at your ceiling, I would encourage you to say this. God, if you're there, if Jesus is raised from the dead, And you care for me. And looking back at my life, I'm not quite sure why you would. But if you do, I want to get to know you. I want to trust you. I want to take you up on your offer of life more abundantly. I want to take you up on knowing you. You who say you created me. And had life for me now in the dash. And life for me the moment my heart stops, that I'll be with you forever. He has to answer that prayer. So let's do this. Let's take a break. Uh, let's get back to our tables. And uh, next week, next week we're going to be why and how, the topic is why and how should I pray? How do we pray? How does that work? All right, so we'll see you next week, I hope. Thank you.